Now, what's the solution to this? How do we get through this? Pursue the things we're really passionate about. Let's see what humanity can really do. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sommer-Nielsen, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for the second renaissance this week on the second renaissance i chat with my old friend brett king brett's a world-renowned futurist and speaker colleague and international best-selling author and media personality in 2020 he was inducted into the fintech hall of fame by cb insights President Xi Jinping cited his book Augmented on the topic of artificial intelligence in his address to the nation in 2018, and Brett has the most number one best-selling titles in banking and fintech globally of any author in the last decade. He splits his time between Bangkok and New York, and increasingly in the metaverse. In this episode, we dive deep into his new book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, and we scenario plan what types of worlds are most sustainable for humanity and the planet, what mistakes we have to avoid, and which technologies hold the most merit for driving equity and justice in the near and far horizon futures. Welcome to a space odyssey into Tomorrowland. Brett King, welcome to the show. Fresh off of Bloomberg, uh, onto the second renaissance. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Anders. Uh, obviously, my Bloomberg training should come in handy for this session, but <laughs> good to be here. We'll ask you way tougher questions today, no doubt. I'm sure. So, techno-socialism, let's uh, jump straight into it. Uh, great title for your new book, by the way. Um I'm curious, why this book, uh, why now, and what's techno-socialism? I wrote a book in 2015 called Augmented, Life in the Smart Lane. It did very well, ended up on the desk of President Xi, incidentally, in, in um, 2018 in his national address. So, um, you know, that, that uh, uh, was, was well received. But, um, you know, one of the, the gaps, um, you know, in that was a societal... Um, and philosophical one is that technology, I, I sort of realized in writing that, that technology is obviously going to change the world and it's going to change how we as individuals adapt, you know, um, you know, people will adapt differently to uh, things like artificial intelligence and gene therapy. And, you know, we've seen uh, the impact of, of the, the pandemic as an example. But the, the stuff that's on the you know, it, it, from a social cohesion perspective, how it's going to change the way we live together, how it's going to change the way, you know, we transition from, you know, the, the sort of societies we have today to highly automated societies, how climate is going to impact that. And um, really, you know, this key issue of inequality that's becoming a really significant problem globally, all of that was sort of weighing on my mind. It was like, you know, what's the solution to this? How do we get through this contentious period of human history and come out on, on the other side, you know, um, evolving as a species to, um, you know, to do better. And um, that was sort of the start of, of the journey. Um, 
I, I worked on this book with a co-author. He's a, an economist, a policy advisor. Um, he's done a lot of work on Australian competitiveness, um, you know, on, on China, on the greater China market. He's been based in Hong Kong for almost 30 years, Dr. Richard Petty, previously the president of CPA Australia. Um, so, you know, having Richard's sort of import into sort of the policy and economic side, I think, was super useful. But ultimately, we, we started with, you know, how do you fix the gross inequality that became a real issue, um, you know, during um, the pandemic? And then where do we go from there in terms of disruption that AI is going to bring on society and climate's going to um, bring on society and, and sort of tried to solve the, the issues from there? And the book is, uh, I mean, really interesting in terms of its sort of layout and the sort of central tenet, I guess, which is that you guys have done a bit of scenario planning, which, of course, for us futurists is one of the tools in our toolkit, a sort of a thought experiment of imagining, uh, you know, some different future worlds. It's not about predicting one future world, which we so often get asked to do, but imagining both dystopias and utopias. Can you talk us through just how you went about uh, you know, crafting these future narratives, what the future mm. worlds, and not just one world, but the four different future worlds are, mm. and why we should try and avoid some of them, but strive towards uh, techno-socialism, which is, of course, the, the preferred world. Well, we, we refer to techno-socialism as optimal humanity in the book. So I'll, I'll get into that in a, a little bit. So um, you're right. We, we did look at various scenarios. And, um, you know, there, there are various ways we could model this. But how we chose to model it, you know, taking the central problem of um, inequality, um, you know, in terms of how we resolve that. So I- inclusive societies versus exclusionary societies. So, you know, more collective view of humanity versus individualistic view of humanity. Certainly, um, you know, the United States with its constitution is very focused on individual rights over the, the rights of the whole. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about socialism and, you know, what that means. But, you know, if you if you look at say the Nordic regions, um, you know, and others, um, you know, where you see more more uh, social. Uh, focus. Um, You know, they're sort of the two extremes in terms of social policy. And then um, on the other um, axes, we looked at chaotic futures versus planned or ordered futures. So that was the framework we used to model that. And so in the the chaotic collective, you have um, where, you know, we, we looked at rejection of science and technology, which is a trend certainly that's emerged during the pandemic in respect to coronavirus and so forth, um, you know, the fake news uh, epidemic and, and, and these sorts of things. And so we came up with that scenario, we called it the Ladistan scenario based on, you know, the broad rejection of technology and science. Then in the um, individualistic um, chaotic segment, we had, um, or quadrant, we had um, the fail-to-stand scenario. So where we just waited too long to respond to the issues of climate change, you know, we aren't prepared for the food scarcity issues that come. And so, you know, we have the collapse of, uh, you know, uh, nation states as a result of the chaos that that comes from that. Um, And then on the ordered side, 
you have neo-feudalism, so that's the individualistic ordered state. And so this is where essentially inequality gets baked in. So um, you know, policy setting, uh, response to climate is really driven by corporations that uh, are involved in policy setting. We see this in Australia, we see this in the UK and the United States where these corporations have uh, um, significant control over the political process and over policy making. And then of course we have the inclusive ordered where um, you know is techno-socialism which is essentially using technology to um, highly automate government to improve resource allocation across the economy. So the economy first and foremost is focused on the needs of citizens before it looks at the needs of the market and corporations. And so that's essentially the four uh, quadrants in terms of future scenarios we, we came up with. And uh, honestly, um, we expect to see all of these four scenarios over the next 30 to 50 years. Um, but we argue passionately in the book that the optimal outcome for humanity, particularly in the face of climate um, change and the effects of that, um, is this, uh, this state we call techno-socialism. And so, of course, the the way you've gone about this is to study some of the major mega trends that are influencing us at the moment. Uh, and then you sort of overlay it on an X and Y axis. For those of you who haven't done much scenario planning in the past, overlay it on an X, Y axis. So you get these four different future worlds, all with very different unique dynamics that sort of form the basis of your, of your future narrative. Um, if we go back to some of those sort of steep factors, so sociocultural, technological, economic, environmental, political factors, you've alluded to some of them, but what are those major drivers of change that will be either buoying industries, individuals, communities, or or majorly disrupting them? So we talk about economic uncertainty being a key driver of the conflict and division that we see globally today. Um, and that obviously is born out of the problems around inequality. So, um, you know, for example, um, you know, during the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires cost 10, past $10 trillion for the first time. Um, the US billionaires accumulated $1.6 trillion of wealth uh, during the pandemic, where, um, you know, and that means that now, you know, the billionaire class in the United States owns more wealth than the bottom 90% of the American population, which history tells us is an untenable situation. Um, we also looked at the um, responses to economic uncertainty globally, and we saw a massive increase in protests over the first 20 years of the 20th, 21st century, rather, compared with the 20th. So on a rolling average basis from the 20th century, and this even includes the civil rights uh, era in the United States, the protests against the Vietnam and Iraq wars, for example, um, where you know we saw a 200% increase in the frequency of protests globally in the first 20 years of, of uh, this century. But we saw a thousand percent increase in participation. So this is a measure of the economic uncertainty that is in the system. 
So then, um, you know, that's that's one crisis that we have to deal with, the inequality um, issue and the economic uncertainty it provides. Then you have the pandemic that accelerated or accentuated, um, rather, the uh, this issue of economic uncertainty. Then you have artificial intelligence, which is going to change patterns of employment, resulting in techno unemployment, um, you know, people um, that are you know, process-oriented jobs, working in supply chain, transportation, things like this being... Um, you know, being replaced or affected by AI. And then, of course, climate change, where you have around 600 cities globally affected by sea rise. Uh, you have uh, a food scarcity as a result of changing, um, you know, uh, 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 food production and farming patterns. You know, so all of this adds up to increasing economic uncertainty. Um, and so there really does need to be a solution to this on a, on a systemic basis. And, um, you know, those solutions are available to us, but it does require us to take a philosophical leap away from the systems that we have today, the systems of governance, the systems of policy setting, um, the uh, particularly the model of capitalism. And I'm not saying we should reject capitalism in its entirety, but, um, you know, looking at the problem of climate change, looking at the problem of inequality and economic uncertainty we face today, you know, there's a strong argument to be made that that capitalism um, you know, created these difficulties that we find ourselves with today. So um, reforming capitalism so it works better for uh, you know, everybody sort of is a, is a key goal. So that's sort of the, they're the factors that lead to this sort of broad economic uncertainty, which um, you know, historically speaking, creates a lot of instability um, in terms of uh, you know, society and political systems. Mm. So, I mean, when as a as a Swede uh, who's now adopted Australia as my as my home nation, you know, I grew up in in a, in a social democracy, um, studied the the goods and the, the bads of, of those societies, and um, you know, I remember even at university studying Marx and Engels, and and some of the sort of you know level a level of cynicism, I guess, around the idea of socialism in, in, in Marxism or in communism, socialism was seen as sort of a, a transition period towards the, you know, the true state of communism. Other people have, have viewed it as, uh, you know, as the ultimate sort of welfare state where you have, you know, capitalism and entrepreneurs working, creating wealth, and then it's being redistributed across society uh, in a sort of, a, you know, socialist utopia. I'm wondering... The way you view it um, and the way you view socialism is technological unemployment, universal basic income. Are these, are they just a sort of a, a leveler? I mean, some, some people like Marx and Engels might even say that, hey, you know, the reason we invented the welfare state is actually to placate, you know, the 99% so that there won't be a revolution. You know, is that the worst case scenario or can things like universal basic income help soften it? And, and is that sort of inclusive future, that one that can actually be beneficial 
for all? Well, you know, there's two ways to sort of look at this. Um, the first is to say, you know, how do we measure an economy in terms of its success? So the way economists typically measure, you know, the utility of an economy is GDP growth, um, you know, full employment, um, you know, trade surpluses and balances, you know, these, these types of measures that we're very used to hearing about. Um, and, and by those measures, you know, we've seen some very successful economies since the uh, Second World War, particularly the US is the most successful economy the world's ever seen at the height of its success, accounting for 40% of all global output in the 1960s and, and you know, producing um, incredible wealth. But if you look at the problems in the United States today, the inequality um, during the pandemic, the U.S. went from 500,000 homeless to 23 million people living without regular housing. Um, you have uh, limited access to health care. You have uh, poor education um, outcomes. Um, you know, on this basis, um, if you if you measure the economy by how it looks after the basic needs of its citizens, you'd have to say that the U.S. economy is a demonstrable failure. And so, um, you know, it really sort of depends on what your primary objectives here are. It is, is, that, is creation of wealth for a smaller and smaller group of people, is, is that the measure of success of our societies, or is it the prosperity of society in general that you're aiming for? And so that doesn't necessarily mean that you have these, you know, very wealthy people working and giving away their wealth after they've worked so hard. You're really talking about the fact that the system doesn't allow people, um, you know, at the bottom of the uh, economic period to create wealth that um, gives them a living wage, for example, in the United States. And so, um, you know, we refer to um, some really interesting history on this. Will and Ariel Durant wrote a book in the 1960s called Lessons from History. And they studied all the various types of political and economic and social systems throughout history and found that there were sort of two broad classifications in terms of the way economies and um, societies worked. One was what they classified as a diamond-shaped economy. Um, and so this is where feudal systems, monarchies, etc., the sort of neo-feudal corporate systems that we have today are designed to make wealth flow uphill to a smaller and smaller group of the wealthy elite. This is, um, you know, through the majority of history, these are the types of uh, organizing principles we've seen in society. But actually, the most successful economies the world has ever seen, such as um, you know Britain during its heyday or the post-Second World War U.S. economy, was a diamond-shaped economy and a bell curve of uh, wealth distribution um, through uh, employment mechanisms, a growing middle class where consumption was uh, you know powered through um, you know the uh, the distribution of wealth evenly in society, and that may this supercharged um, you know economies like the United States. And this is what's happening in China right now. China's moved from a, a, a pyramid-shaped model to a diamond-shaped model, and as a result, you have this sort of supercharged economy growing very rapidly, which is going to surpass the United States as the world's number one economy. But in the U.S., we've seen that the diamond shape flattening out 
right? With uh, it started in the 1980s with attacks on trade unions with the Thatcher government and Reagan, um, and then uh, you know the, the destruction of collective bargaining, then the deregulation of the financial services market, and these sort of things flowing on to create again this mechanism to uh, channel wealth to a smaller and smaller group of people. So, you know, we can see throughout history that when you have a very small group of people that, um, you know, maintain the highest levels of wealth and gear the economy for, you know, production to produce more wealth for themselves, that this creates problems of inequality that can lead to either revolution or legislated redistribution of wealth. Um, and in you know the U.S. in particular, we we've seen legislated redistribution of wealth, but it's been legislated redistribution of wealth to the richest one percent of America, not to the rest of the population. Right. So, this is a functional yeah. um, you know uh, flaw in the U.S. economy, which is creating this massive discord right now. And so, you know, living in New York um, and seeing that, you know, there's no such thing as American anymore. You're either a Republican or Democrat. That's that's pretty much how people you're, you're either a, you know, a, a libtard snowflake or or a, uh, a MAGA, uh, you know, fanatic. And, and um, you know, that's this this is not a way for humans to um, work together to move forward as a species and that's really if we step back from the problem is why are we here what's the purpose of humans on this planet is it to make money and be rich or is it to further the you know the the needs and the uh, um, you know capabilities of the species as a whole and you know if that's the case we're sort of going backwards right now you know on the UBI thing, UBI, you know, in, in a state of um, highly automated societies where technology um, reduces the amount of human labor, UBI is a, a basic necessity to stop revolution, as, as you've pointed out. Um, but a lot of people sort of miss the point around artificial intelligence and, and automation. When we're successful at having highly automated societies, we will eliminate humans from the workforce. That is the job of artificial intelligence intelligence or the intent um, and so that does give us the opportunity to pursue a different type of work we can do work that we're passionate about work that really makes a difference like you know mitigation of uh, you know climate change issues and things like that um, uh, um, uh, but it, it is going to require a sort of a universal basic income structure not just as a social safety net but as a, a way of thinking about the you know the the more appropriate distribution of the massive wealth that's going to be created from artificial intelligence at a, at an economic macroeconomic level. Well, I mean, commentators and 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 philosophers in this space, like Max Tegmark in Life 3.0. I mean, he talks about the fact that you know if we if we waste this opportunity for wealth creation by sort of concentrating wealth amongst the one percent or the zero point one percent. Uh, that is a monumental failure on, on humanity and that really we're, we're at the dawn in what we call the second renaissance, this flourishing era of human creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, humanism, um, that we really are at the dawn of, of an amazing era where we can uh, truly unleash our creative powers amplified and augmented, as you call it, uh, with artificial intelligence and, and robotics. Um, 
one thing I'm picking up there um, on is this idea of sustainability, right? Which is, you know, meeting the needs of the present generation without endangering the needs of future generations. Uh, we've had Raj Sisodia, who wrote Conscious Capitalism, on the show. We've had uh, one of our Aussie mates, Simon Mannering, on the show. He's just released a book called We First. Both of those books or concepts are, are based on this notion of spiral dynamics, right? Which is that we tend to kind of go from individually focused societies to community or communitarian-based societies as, as we evolve as a species. Is there an element of that in the idea of techno-socialism as, as well? Well, you know, um, it, it is absolutely critical because, you know, obviously we're more connected than ever before with the internet and we've seen um, that this has created, uh, ironically, more of an individualistic uh, um, response from society. But the problems that we're going to face, particularly in the 2040s, uh, moving towards the 2050s with, um, you know, cl the climate change issues, you know, sea level rise, we've got a number of nations that are essentially going to be wiped out like the Maldives and Bangladesh with 80% of their infrastructure affected by sea level rise plus uh, you know potentially somewhere between 300 million and a billion eco refugees as a result of food scarcity issues and combination of things like uh, sea level rise um, so you know you cannot look at the scale of that problem and just say you're on your own um, you know it's not a human response it's not a moral response and so we have to come up with a collective approach to uh, to this um, and you know just shutting the borders to a billion eco refugees isn't viable either you know so ultimately you know, coming through this process, we are going to have to work together to solve these problems. There's no other reasonable solution because otherwise we just descend into resource wars and major conflicts that, um, you know, uh, it's just chaotic, you know. And so um, the only logical you know, reasonable approach, uh, you know, through this is to have a more collective sense of the species. Um, and, you know, we... You know, we sort of take this view that nation states and the way we have organized ourselves as a, as a species in terms of the plot of land that we grew up on are fairly arbitrary, you know, abstractions in terms of the way we've you know, classified human society. But if we're really going to come out the other side of this, um, then, you know, sure, we, we, you know, should celebrate different culture, cultures and history and things like that. But, you know, humanity's best chance for moving forward and having this sustainable prosperity, you know, um, sort of doctrine, if you like, is, you know, working together and figuring out how do we work together. So we give a great examples of in the past where humans working together have, um, you know, achieved you know, great strides in history, the Apollo project, the human genome project, um, you know, even the response to the pandemic, that, you know, humanity, when we work together, we're really unstoppable. It's when we have these sort of artificial divisions around politics and economic classes and things like that, that actually, you know, we, we see uh, gross inefficiencies develop at a, at a species level. Um, and certainly we could argue that capitalism has created incredible incentives. Um, however, 
um, you know, one of the things that we feel overall is, is negative and going to increasingly be a problem for the human species is that capitalism relies on competition against each other. And so we argue in the book that human society, when it comes to, um, you know, these economic forces, that should, we should be built economically on, on, or focused on competing for humanity because that's the the way we all benefit the most and so um, taking that sort of those competitive forces and innovation to create competition you know for positive outcomes for humanity is a better way to sort of focus um, those efforts and uh, mechanisms mm. I mean historically in your you know bank 1.0 2.0 3.0 4.0 uh, some of the great works that you've published over the years I know this has been a central sort of tenet of, of inclusion, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, you talk about the unbanked and that, you know, the fintech revolution was also one of financial inclusion. Uh, you no longer had to go to a branch because everyone has a branch in their back pocket. Uh, hopefully I'm not bastardizing your, your concepts and content here too much. Um, but that sort of idea of... Um, inclusion how does that how does that play out as we see more sort of hybrid models of, of capitalism because there is you know there's a strong trend towards you know b corps there's the you know one percent for the planet there's people pledging 10 percent of their income for life towards um philanthropy etc are we seeing a shift in, in this sort of ethos of capitalism as wall street is waking up to the merits of ESG and the fact that, you know, at least during, you know, 2020, 2021, there were a lot of, there was a lot of evidence that ESG focused uh, corporations were actually outperforming their more laggard um, peers. Are, are we seeing a, a shift in the ethos of capitalism and, and how can we speed it up? No, absolutely. Uh, I think um, one of the key elements here is that corporate you know, if you're not a good corporate citizen, then the market is, you know, certainly uh, consumers are going to self-select away from those services increasingly as it becomes clear that, you know, there there are actors that have been, um, you know, essentially, you know, for example, um, you know, we talk about fossil fuel um, corporations, companies, um, and we talk about the fact that we've known since the 1970s, 1980s, what uh, putting carbon in the atmosphere, you know, was going to do to uh, our climate. Um, and, you know, we've had the technology to replace fossil fuels for decades now, and we haven't done that because of the market has traded profits for, you know, the, uh, the you know, uh, for against those technologies and so you know um, and even if you don't take climate you just look at air quality when it comes to uh, um, you know fossil fuel uh, pollution you know we eight to ten people eight to ten million people die every year from fossil fuel related uh, you know um, uh, conditions you know uh, air quality pollution and so forth 
so um, you know, is it reasonable to say, well, that's the price of progress, when we've actually had the ability to replace the polluters and the technology, coal plants and um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, combustion engines and so forth, but we've elected not to because some people are making a ton of money out of this. Um, you know, there's more fossil fuel subsidies today in the United States than there is subsidies for solar and green energy, for example. So why is that situation allowed? to continue to exist. Why during COP26 was it so hard to get the leading industrial nations, US, China and India, to commit to you know, weaning themselves off coal power when um, you know, electricity is already one-tenth of the price of coal? You know, if you're in Australia, it's one-thirtieth of the price of, of coal-based elect electricity. Why is it so hard to get off coal when it kills people and you know, um, renewables are already massively cheaper? Um, and that's the momentum that's in that existing uh, system, as, as you sort of allude to. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a great example of saying, you know, if we step back from this problem and we're doing the right thing for humanity, then, you know, investing in green technologies, battery storage technology and so forth, it's going to create a ton of jobs. It's going to, um, you know, improve the environment. You know, what's the downside uh, to doing this? And so it, at the same time, time I think that once it becomes very clear the damage that is really has really been done to society those corporations who were uh, complicit in those actions are going to face some very very tough questions from society uh, at large um, you know just like we saw you know when uh, you know um, Evidence came out about uh, um, you know cancer related to, to lung cancer related to smoking and things like that. There, there's going to be some some recompense required, but ultimately. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is, like Elon Musk says, ultimately we're going to run out of, uh, you know, carbon-based fossil fuels. So why wouldn't we make the transition sooner rather than later, um, especially if it's better for society? So on the sustainability side... I think there's definitely going to be, and we talk about this in the book, a culture emerge, particularly for the Gen Zs, uh, you know, Gen Ys to some extent, where they're saying, you know, we, we don't want the sort of world you had where you, um, you know, allowed us to destroy the planet in return for profits. That just, just doesn't make any sense in a, in a rational world. And so, um, you know, there is, we believe, going to be a real generational shift around you know, sort of good corporates. Now, you can see some companies already preparing for this. As as you've said, those with a real ESG platform, you know, are tending to do better. But look at what's happening with Apple and companies like them at the moment. Google, you know, making very clear about their carbon neutral or carbon negative uh, efforts to really, um, you know, uh, and using sustainable um, uh, uh, resources in terms of their products and things like that. I think this is just a trend that's going to really bed in. And if you look at sort of the the middle of next decade, around 2035, that's when we think sort of this sustainable prosperity doctrine is really going to start to become popular. Mm. Yeah, we just recently did um, did some work with, uh, with Dyson and um, the core kind of message there in terms of how they're engaging with their suppliers that, um, you know, we're really curated for them was that the future consumer, the, the conscious consumer, which is increasingly powerful and in exercising uh, 
a lot of a lot of weight. Um, we see the rise of conscious consumption around the planet. In fact, 55% of global consumers now say that you know traceability and 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 the provenance of of their goods is an important factor when they're making purchasing decisions. But I really made the point that now the supply chain is in many ways the story that wins hearts and minds. And um, you know it is interesting to see, and I think really heartening to see organisations like. Apple um, moving towards a circular economy where every component gets uh, you know gets to be under the spotlight, so that they can tell in a sense you know the tech version of the sort of farm to table or farm to fork story that you know that we've seen in the, in the food space for for a long time. Um, are there other examples outside of tech where you where you're seeing that organisations are moving towards really laying bare and sort of opening their kimono on their supply chains and and what what impact will will that have for the foreseeable future? Well, you know, I, I think um, you know the other thing to look at here is is the supply chain mechanism and sort of you know uh, resource uh, allocation itself uh, at, a, at a macro basis and that's where highly automated societies are going to look at these elements very differently so for example vertical farming and urban greening and things like that being you know important elements of city design you know we talk about Shenzhen um, you know as a smart city and what what they've been doing there but um, you know think about um, you know, if you want abundance uh, you know, at a city level for everyone to be happy and healthy and have abundance in food and, you know, everyone to have a roof over their head and access to healthcare and education, you have to look at supply chain and you have to look at resource allocation. Um, so we looked at the way technologies could radically automate government. So think of government as a DAO, right, a distributed autonomous organization. Um, and so think of the healthcare system in the United States. The health Healthcare system in the United States, as I'm sure you're aware, has, has got significant problems. Um, the you know the U.S. Uh, total cost of healthcare is twice the OECD average, and in most cases you have poorer um, health outcomes than um, you know on the OECD average. So even though Americans pay more for healthcare than any other developed nation in the world, they don't necessarily get better healthcare. So we looked at healthcare. You know, the whole universal healthcare thing is a whole, uh, uh, you know, um, contentious issue in the U.S. But by using a set of different technologies, we found that we could radically reduce the the overall cost of healthcare. So that includes, for example, um, you know, forty uh, percent of the costs of the current healthcare system in the United States are administrative costs. So using robotic process automation to remove that, you get. Uh, you, you instantly, you know, slash the cost of healthcare. Forty um, percent of diagnosis in American healthcare are wrong, so that's why you always ask for a second opinion because you've essentially got a one in two chance of getting a, a misdiagnosis. So, use of artificial intelligence there is already showing incredible improvements in uh, diagnostic quality. Then you get into gene therapy, three D bioprinting, and all of these individual technologies, personalized medicine and so forth that we, that we can use. So by putting those in the aggregate, you can reduce the cost of healthcare in the United States by 70% and, and provide better, broader healthcare to the entire community. 
And so that's the type of sort of supply chain re-engineering that we really look at in techno-socialism. Um, you know, when in classic terms, when people argue capitalism versus socialism, they're thinking that socialism means it's going to have to take money out of their pocket to pay for someone else. Where we actually demonstrate in the book that exactly the opposite is true, that if you invest in these systems, that it means more money for everyone. Right. And you mean lowering cost of basic services, you know, um, but on a moral basis, you know, we 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 are the the wealthiest the human species has ever been in terms of access to technology and, and overall wealth. There's no reason for anyone to be homeless today. There's no reason for anyone to go hungry. There's no reason for someone not to have access to adequate health care. The system can provide those solutions if we engineer it, um, you know, properly. So that's really all we're talking about is how do you opt Optimize the engineering of the system to ensure that first and foremost the needs of the citizens are taken care of and then you can worry about the the other elements does that sort of answer your question yeah I, I think to a degree but I, I think also here it, it's very evident that um, you know while we you know where we think that capitalism despite its flaws can solve a lot of societal problems and certainly as entrepreneurs um maybe even with a you know social conscious and maybe uh, hopefully as enlightened entrepreneurs we see that capitalism is is not the solution to all woes but even in that regard you know if someone's paying uh for medical services like um, we have friends who who had um, their second-born child in uh, in in uh, California, and they call the baby the million-dollar baby because they saw saw the bills coming in. Luckily, they had uh, health insurance, but their baby was premature, and uh, they saw the you know the actual cost and breakdown of, of keeping their you know baby alive in in NICU, and, and and luckily baby baby is alive and well, and 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 developmentally you know progressing really nicely. Um, but they moved back to Australia to a slightly different society after the baby was born, uh, and just saw those saw those differences. And I think even when we see whether it's um, you know people have been on on their cigarette packs if they still smoke, you know they can see you know on generic packaging they can see all the the health impacts of of making that choice to consume a particular product we haven't seen the same when it comes to you know filling up uh, cars for example with you know fossil based fuels to see that 8 to 10 million people a year are dying because of pollution right um, and similarly when it comes to healthcare we're not seeing all the inefficiencies in the system i mean it'd be interesting just to see that you know how, how can you actually extend that dollar going further? And again, in a sort of a traceable, transparent fashion, if the hospital is not investing in artificial intelligence for, for cancer diagnosis, for example, and if 40% of doctors are getting their diagnosis right, is that something you as the consumer actually want to pay for? So I think that that in and of itself is a different sort of conversation um, in terms of supply chain and, and, and where we get our goods and services from. Um, and just asking more in terms of traceability for whatever systems we engage with. So, so that's where I'm sort of heading with that with that concept. Uh, you know, I think yeah. Look, I think in terms of you know, th there's 
like food production is the obvious area where we're going to need to see radical improvements. Um, you know, we've lost 40% of the Earth's arable land over the last 50 years um, due to erosion, over farming, pollution, and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, and climate, obviously. Um, and, you know, uh, we're seeing, um, you know, uh, staple crops now being um, particularly sensitive to, uh, you know, global warming. So, for example, the Bordeaux, the French wine, Wine producing region um, by 2030s, uh, you know, mid 20, 2030s, 90% of crops will be failing there as a result of temperature increase. Now, that's bad news for the French. It's good news for the British because they're going to become a wine producing region, right? Um, but, you know, the disruption to employment as a result of this and the disruption to food supply, you know, we, we have to really look at this critically. It's only, we've only got 13 years, you know, until uh, we, we start to see the impact of this. We're starting to see the impact, arguably, of, of that today. So moving, um, you know, away from cattle on farms to lab-grown meats and lab-grown proteins, for example, is a strategy where we could mitigate uh, some of that, uh, you know, the vertical farm, as I mentioned before, and hydroponics and, and um, so forth. There are, you know, definite mechanisms there that, you know, in terms of traceability and sort of production methods that could be uh, certainly greener um, or more more sustainable and uh, and um, you know work better to mitigate uh, those issues. You know, during the pandemic, we saw food scarcity. We you know we saw thousands of people in Texas and New York lining up at food banks and things like that. Um, and this is in an economy that we consider the wealthiest economy in the world. So it's, you know, again, the question comes, um, you know, back to what is the purpose of the economy? If the economy can't feed every citizen, then is the economy a functional economy? You know, that's really uh, at the heart of this debate. Um, now, Capitalism aside, you know, um, we do need entrepreneurs. We we need creative thinking. We need innovation. Um, but is wealth creation the only incentive we should have for that, or is solving these problems that the human species is facing, you know, is that should that be a driver? And this is where things like universal basic income give us some. Um, um, ability to say, well, you know, I don't have to worry about putting food on the table anymore. So let me do something that really matters. Um, and so that's where it gets really interesting to sort of explore how entrepreneurs and, you know, creative innovators could use, uh, you know, and could mobilize people together when, you know, you don't have to worry about just putting a roof over your head and food on the table. Now that that's taken care of, Let's see what humanity can really do. This I'm, I'm curious know. in regions or, or smart cities, um, in nations, what, who's sort of best placed to take advantage of these emerging technologies, these mega trends? And are you seeing some, some areas that are woefully lagging behind? Well, um, you know, we, we look at different economies in terms of their readiness, uh, you know, for this future state. And, um, you know, uh, I, 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 
China does extremely well on many fronts. Um, obviously, you have some social issues in China, and I'm not sort of going to back away from those things. But in terms of their ability to absorb artificial intelligence into society, they're doing more macro-level planning in respect to that than any other economy on the planet. You know, they teach artificial intelligence at a grade level. You know, you've got broad artificial intelligence already integrated into society there with things like facial recognition. And I know we get, a, you know, there's a lot of criticism leveled at um, China for this in terms of civil rights and their social credit scoring. But at the same time, they've reduced identity theft by 10,000% in China, you know, I mean, using facial recognition. So digital identity is really a precursor for 21st century economies. You know, how do you get access to telemedicine, uh, you know, education for your kids, uh, you know, uh, financial services, um, you know, in a highly automated world without digital digitalized identity for example you know a passport or a driver's license isn't going to cut it so um you know that that's examples of where china is already i think very well placed their investment in the belt and road initiative um, over eight trillion dollars invested so far in in that infrastructure so that you know they're creating supply chain um you know uh, mechanisms um and creating uh, trade um you know the central bank digital currency we've just seen the announcement to today that um, Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay wallets won't be allowed at the Olympic venues. They'll be using the uh, the new CBDC wallet, which is you know a huge thing because um, you know China has become very dependent on these mobile wallets. Um, you know that's another example of phenomenal uh, innovation in the economy. There, um, you know the two U.S. mobile, uh, sorry, the two Chinese mobile wallet schemes in 2020 did 52 trillion dollars of mobile payments, whereas all of the plastic cards in the world added up to just 35 trillion. So already, um, you know, mobile wallets are sort of the primary day-to-day -day mechanism for for payments globally, as thanks to to Chinese and India with Paytm and so forth. So, um, you know, we are seeing um, nation states or economies like China really focus on the grassroots capability. We call it um, KIC economies, knowledge, innovation and creativity economies that will emerge in the 21st century, um, moving away from sort of this resource-based, uh, you know, view, view of the economy. Because as you go sustainable, um, you know, you use resources very, very carefully and they're no longer there to be exploited to create wealth. You know, it's now something we have to manage very carefully to create sustainability. So instead, you need to use knowledge and creativity to create wealth, um, you know, as, as, a, as a differentiator to that. We also look at some pretty wild concepts like, um, you know, uh, asteroid mining and things like that, which will be possible as we improve technology. We can see the growth in the space industry and the massive improvements in efficiency there. So this is going to be certainly viable within the next couple of decades to, uh, you know, go and capture asteroids and um, use the resources there. One asteroid we identify in the book called Psyche 16, um, you know, would be um, 100 quadrillion dollars. You know, we're talking about 10,000 times the total planet's GDP, you know, available in a single asteroid. So imagine the wealth that could be created from access to those resources using those technology. There's there's a lot of ways, um, you know, that we see societies prepared 
preparing for this, but the core skill set change is really important in making sure that there's enough technology skills, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math resources in the economy is going to be critical. Um, US um, is falling well behind on this respect. For every one PhD STEM graduate in the United States, China produces three. You know, so this is part of the reason that uh, you know China is technologically leaping ahead of the United States uh, in, in many, many areas right now. And so, um, you know, um, the U.S. will still still obviously be, be there, um, but uh, keep in mind that, you know, um, a lot of the developing nations, so-called developing nations, you know, like the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, you know, uh, of... of uh, you know, three of those four are going to be the top economies in the world, um, you know, in the 2030s. India will probably surpass the United States sometime in the late 2030s as well. So you'll have China, India, and then the United States. Um, and so again, what is India focused on? You know, a lot of technology development over the last few years. So it really, it, you know, if, you, if you're going to succeed in the 21st century, it's, be, it's about being a smart economy. And that requires very different skill sets and very different uh, infrastructure. I'm curious then on a, on a global level, because a lot of the challenges we have talked about here today, you know, whether it's, you know, global warming or if it's, you know, inequality, um, I'm just fascinated by this concept of institutions. And I know that that's a systemic question, you know, the UN, uh, the WHO, uh, the World Bank, you know, are these institutions of the 20th century, are those the ones that are going to help us on a, on a communitarian, on a global level, actually help us in a world where we're seeing, you know, vaccine diplomacy or vaccine nationalism? We're seeing the decentralization and the rise of crypto away from fiat currencies, etc. I mean, there's a sort of this tension between centralization and decentralization, and then you have this global meta level of institutions that might not be fit for purpose. What what do we need to redesign, if anything, to actually help us elevate and, and not just think on a sort of a local parochial level? So I know when it comes to things like the banking system, there's significant advantages in decentralization, um, you know, from an operational perspective, it does create a little bit of chaos because of the lack of regulation, um, you know, and so, you know, for example, if you look at the NFT and crypto space, the amount of fraud and, um, you know, uh, exchanges that have been hacked and the loss of wealth that's occurred there compared with the regulated centralized financial system, it, you know, is uh, orders of bank magnitude greater. And so um, the decentralization of these systems does tend to create a little bit more chaos. But when it comes to climate specifically, um, then, you know, uh, you know, for those that argue against uh, centralized systems like the UN and WHO and things like that, I would just ask a sim simple question, um, you know, which is how can a nation with a single singular 
you know, policy on climate make any impact on a global basis. Um, there's no such thing as national climate change policy. Let's face it. If we want to fix the climate, it's going to have to be a collective pursuit of humanity, you know, highly coordinated across multiple countries. You can't decentralize that. There's no way you can be effective. Um, you can, what you can decentralize is solution setting within that. And so what we propose in the book is forgiveness of all national debt so that those funds are committed to climate mitigation from the 2030s through the 2060s. Um, and so, you know, if you think about that, you know, giving access to those pool of funds, you know, for example, for entrepreneurs to come in and compete for those funds to come up with new carbon sequestration technologies or new, you know, construction of uh, seawall defenses to, um, you know, prevent sea rise and things like that. You know, there's mechanisms where you combine both both centralization and decentralization in terms of solution setting, which could be uh, quite effective. But you're going to have to have mechanisms of centralization, particularly in terms of budget setting and resource allocation. But again, you know, we advocate for as much automation as possible in those areas so that you don't get, um, you know, bias and you don't get, um, uh, you, know, uh, um, you know, bad actors involved in uh, um, the allocation of funds and things like that you know we we uh, we we consciously in the book um you know critical of the sort of lobbying group mechanism um that you know works in uh systems of government today which doesn't result in representative government um you know results in um you know far far too much control from these these guys who are sponsoring politicians effectively. So, for example, um, you know, when you do look at centralized systems, such as policy setting at a government level, we argue for more effective consensus-based mechanisms. So one of the systems that we review in the book is Virtual Taiwan, which was a system created in, in Taiwan to create you know, consensus on policy. So, you know, for sticky uh, um, uh, situations like, you know, how uh, Uber drivers, uh, you know, ride, ride sharing uh, services should work, you know, um, you know, what responsibility do the ride sharing companies have to their driver contractors and things like that, you know, coming to a consensus on that virtual time one was much more effective than sort of the traditional process of uh, taxi companies and others lobbying a government to, to change policy so we, we argue for a sort of a hybrid model here you know um, a, a consensus based mechanism that's more real-time and directly involving um, people that have a stake in those uh, systems um, and then a decentralized uh, um, you know use of capitalism for solution um, solving and, and innovation creation within that set it's interesting use of you know these two concepts, um, the hybridization of, of techno and socialism. Because when you talked about Uber a moment ago, I thought about all the all of the challenges and all the sort of you know welfare state workers' rights criticism that have been leveled at you know the likes of Uber and Deliveroo and. Fedora and 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 all the rest, right? These are you know platform plays. And a few years ago, we heard you know that the you know the biggest you know the biggest uh, taxi company these days, you know, they didn't own a single car. You know, the Airbnb, the biggest hospitality, blah 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 blah. 
Exactly. So there's there's this sense of you know platforms and and huge tech players have done extremely well out of being essentially platforms, but potentially with a little bit of lack of that uh, sort of accountability, responsibility, looking after workers in, in the gig economy. When we talk about techno socialism. Um, how do you sort of reconcile those entrepreneurial plays with the ideas of, of really looking after, you know, the three P's of people, planet and profit? So, you know, there, um, there are really good arguments for things like um, distributed autonomous organizations that sort of as corporations that are highly automated and don't have, um, you know, those, those sort of traditional mechanisms of ownership, um, but can have more broad ownership by stakeholders who invest in them, um, you know, or, or, or employees. But keep in mind that, you know, when we talk about techno-socialism, we are talking about a state where um, as we move into the second half of this century, people will not work to be paid. And so when you finally divorce yourself from the concept that a human's only value in the economy is the labor they produce, when you can divorce yourself from that concept, then things get much more interesting and productive. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you look at basic supply and demand curve in terms of economics, the, the concept always was if demand goes up, you increase supply by employing more people in the labor force. But in the 21st century, that's not going to hold true. And we know that because already nine out of the 10 t- you know, biggest corporations in the world are technology companies that employ far less people than their equivalent, you know, uh, the equivalent corporations of the 1960s, for example. Something like three or four times the number of employees back in the 60s to produce the same economic output that we have today. So, um, you know, uh, Facebook generates like you know, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars per employee annually in returns. Whereas if you take the fossil fuel companies or McDonald's as an example, you know, it's more like thirty, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars per employee. So these technology companies are massively more efficient um, at uh, producing capital, but that's because they employ less people. And so if you extend that trend, then you know, we are looking to create highly automated companies that can create massive profits with employing as minimal people as possible. So the concept that, um, you know, Uber needs to be a good corporate citizen and, and, and employ more people and pay for more driver services is not what the market is rewarding corporations for. Right? It's rewarding corporations for getting rid of employees. And, and you can bet if Uber announced tomorrow that they have now an autonomous vehicle um, that they're going to deploy across their feet and get rid of all of their drivers, their share price would, would increase massively. Right? And so um, we have to divorce ourselves from the fact that a human's value in the economy is the labor they produce because automation is going to mean that when demand goes up, you increase processing cycles in the future, not um, put more people into factory floors or into taxis. So this is a philosophical shift in terms of the role humans play in society when it comes to economies. And, you know, the role that economies should 
play in terms of giving back to uh, citizens as well. Because in the past, we've said your value in terms of, you know, the way you, you can afford to live, your access to healthcare and education and the food you eat and the home you live in, it all depends on how hard you work and how smart you are. Right. And that uh, model itself uh, is going to break down in the future as well for the same reason. Yuval Harari and, and others have, have sort of taken this a, a step further and then question, what does it mean in terms of where humans derive their meaning from? Uh, if you don't have a job and you've always identified as a taxi driver or as a truck driver or as a futurist or whatever it happens to be, if you derive a lot of meaning and, and sort of personal satisfaction from work in a world without traditional work, what do you think? Where, where will people derive their meaning from? People will still work. They just won't be paid in the traditional way for that work. It won't, you know, their work won't be tied to putting food on the table and a roof over their heads. You know, if you look at the UBI trials, and we looked at 72 universal basic income trials around the world. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that if you give people UBI, they're not going to work. They're going to be couch potatoes, sit watching TV and playing video games or in the metaverse all the time. Data just doesn't bear that out. In fact, the rate of uh, entrepreneurs that come out of UBI trials is significantly higher than the uh, the baseline percentage in, in terms of um, you know uh, general population. So when you give people UBI, guess what? They create more jobs. They create more employment. They create more um, you know they they create more innovation because they're free to pursue things without that pressure of having to do a nine to five job to put food on the table. So um, this is not about destroying work. It's about destroying the concept of labor in 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 classic economical terms. But it means that we'll be able to pursue the things we're really passionate about. We'll be able to pursue education to advance our uh, um, our skill sets. We'll be able to pursue uh, different um, you know things that can really make an impact in the world and in our community without the constraints that the current labor market um, you know puts on employees. And so this is not about destroying work handers. I think that that's that that's a capitalism talk point right it is but that's not true that's not what automation is going to do automation is going to give us the ability to pursue our passions things that make us excited about getting up in the morning and will make a real difference to the world in a way that the current um, system of employment could never do mm. I mean there's a fascinating concept from, from from Japan which sort of started trending a few years ago based upon it being highlighted by the World Economic Forum and known as Ikigai that I'm sure you've come across, which is which is this concept of life's purpose, right? And and the reason for being, and um, it's when the four concentric circles overlap of you know doing what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what can also potentially make you money, but also what the world needs. And I think. And I think technology is the huge liberator in all of this, together with the systemic processes and, of course, the welfare networks that you talk about to actually um, help us unleash and decouple ourselves from this idea that you have to go to work, put food on the table, and maybe if you have five minutes spare at the end of the day, you get to pursue your creative passions or something that has uh, purpose-led meaning or can contribute to the world. So, I mean, for me personally... 
I'm probably going to go to Mars, man. Yeah, well, if if, if, if everything else fails, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you'll be able to 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 get a spot on uh, Elon's platform. We use that as an example in the book, actually. You know, to argue if if we did create a society on Mars and had a million people living in a city on Mars, would Mar- would Martians have a uh, have a system of capitalism uh, to run their economy? And the the answer it would be no. Because, um, you know, your primary objectives for a Martian colony would be to create enough food, air and water for the economy to be sustainable or the colony to be sustainable and not rely on, um, you know, Earth sending you uh, uh, goods and services. A very different uh, prioritization. But we could do the same here, obviously, um, you know, for for climate response, response and sustainability. But Well, and I think something that might look a little bit more like a a Burning Man type set up for, for community and uh, communitarianism uh, than, than the capitalist version we now have. I mean, I've just been watching and we're in the into the final innings here. I've just been watching a, a movie on, on Netflix that I'm sure you've come across as well, which is Don't Look Up, where, you know, they think, think about this comet that's about to hit Earth. And um, of course, as it's on this trajectory to Earth, people see the economic benefits and starting to mine that uh, that comet before it actually reaches Earth uh, to extract the maximum amount of profits from it. Uh, that's not what we're talking about when you talked about um, asteroid mining. But I think uh, just like that comet from the future, techno-socialism and the book, of course, is a future signal, uh, maybe from space, that it's time to change and, and start elevating our consciousness into the second renaissance and unleashing what you talk about knowledge, innovation, and creativity of humans uh, so that augmented by technology, we can actually create a more sustainable future. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the second Renaissance spread. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Anders. On our next episode, we speak with Whitney Telluck, who is a B Corp consultant and the head of learning and development at the co-working space Hub Australia. Whitney is passionate about transforming communities and facilitating sustainable business. She's a firm believer in the power of using business as a force for good. And we discuss why the B Corp movement is gathering momentum and why this transformation journey can be so powerful for cultures, business and society. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.